Hello, everybody. I'm Gary Thorne, and welcome to The Sports Rivals. It is brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? Well, our purpose here on The Sports Rivals is to preserve memories of classic sports rivalries and do it through the words of those who participated in them. These are rivalries that are described from the inside out. And what a rivalry we have to talk about today. Dave Scott and Mark Allen are our guests. They are Ironman triathlon participants over a lot of years, and particularly one great race in Hawaii in 1989 that is going to be the focal point of what we're doing here. Dave Scott is a six-time Ironman triathlon Hawaii champion. He was the first person to be inducted into the Ironman Triathlon Hall of Fame. Dave raced from 1980 to 1996. He had an unbelievable comeback in 1994 when at the age of 40, he ended up in the triathlon finishing second. Mark Allen, also a six-time Ironman champion. He is in the Hall of Fame as well. The Ironman Hall of Fame inducted him in 1997. He uh, has raced and uh, did race in Hawaii 12 times in the Ironman triathlon. He uh, had two seasons where he put together spectacular runs, two years, 21 straight triathlon victories worldwide. These are two of the greatest athletes of all time. That's simply a fact based on what they did in their race careers. And what we uh, want to remind you about is what a, an Ironman triathlon is. It involves a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile bike ride, and a 26.2 full marathon. That's why it's called Ironman. And in 1989, these two, Dave Scott and Mark Allen, really recreated what the Ironman race is all about in the minds of both the racers and of the fans. It has become known, that race in 1989, as the Iron War and as the greatest race ever run. And I ask you to think about this. Put this in your mind as you listen to them. This race lasted for over eight hours, swimming, biking, the marathon, and they were never more than a few feet apart for the entire eight-hour period right up to the finish. Imagine that. Imagine that. In a race like that, for two to literally be hearing each other's footsteps for the entire eight hours. Mark Allen won that race in a record eight hours, 15 seconds. It was his first win in Hawaii. He broke the old record by more than 18 minutes, a record Dave Scott held. Dave finished second just 58 seconds later. That is why it has been called the Iron War and why it has been called the greatest race ever run. And it's just so great to have the two men involved in that, Dave Scott and Mark Allen, as our guests here today. So, gentlemen, I am going to turn this over to you with just an introductory question for each of you, and then you can get into the race itself. Dave, I'll start with you and, and Mark the same question. When did you first become aware of the other? When did each of you become aware of the other in terms of racing and have some kind of a feel 
that this might be a competitive a competitive twosome that was going to last for some time. Dave? Well, I was aware, Mark, uh, the sport really started to gain momentum in the early 80s. And the first sort of pseudo-professional series started uh, much short distance, which was our kind of Olympic distance race. Uh, it was really 2,000-meter swim, a, about a 30-mile bike and a 15K run. There was a series of those that happened in 1982. My recollection is is still there or preserved. And I was aware of Mark. Uh, he was one of a couple other guys that became the big four, Scott Tim and Scott Molina. And we seemed to be doing fairly well. So Mark came on the scene and right away put a stamp on uh, his potential and his ability. So to say that I didn't see him would be <laughs> really myopic and, and blind. I, I was aware of Mark and, and then we ended up colliding in Ironman in 1982 for the first time. So throughout all those years and certainly leading up to 89, uh, we had several uh, battles, not just on the Ironman course, uh, but, you know, Mark became a, a, a very distinct rivalry to say the least. Yeah. I, you know, I, I started in the sport in 1982. Dave had a, he had a head start. He was in there uh, winning the Ironman already. And, it, and it, at the Ironman in 1982, October, um, my first Ironman, Dave Scott, was there hoping to win his second title, if I remember that correctly. Remind me if I get any of these, <laughs> these things wrong. <laughs> that, that is correct, Mark. Keep going. Um, oh, by the way, uh, Gary, my time that year was eight hours, nine minutes and 15 seconds. Uh, I, I'd I love, apologize. I'd love if it was eight hours and 15 <laughs> seconds, I would have beaten Dave by nine minutes, but that didn't work <laughs> out that way. So anyway, you know, that, that very first race that Dave was talking about and was a, a, an amazing series of short distance races that lasted many seasons. And Dave won that race and I was fourth. I was nowhere in his ballpark, in his arena. He was, he looked, I could see him on the run as we passed each other going in opposite directions. I was still heading out and he was finishing, but uh, he looked like a friggin' steam engine. You know, everybody else was looking like they were pretty much, um, you know, trying to look like runners. Dave just looked like he was plowing through the, through a field and just mowing everything down. I'm like, geez, this guy is, I don't think I've ever seen anybody look that strong, you know, and, and Mark, Mark is complimentary right now, Gary, because <laughs> he, he's actually saying he, I look really rugged, rugged and disheveled and my running style was shocking, but he's very complimentary at the outset of this interview. So I, I'm not one you want to videotape running. I look, I look dreadful. Well, you did say, uh, you know, at one point you, you mentioned that your running style, uh, actually set running back about 20 years so <laughs> <laughs> it certainly did when we were side by side because people always commented they said gosh mark looks pretty elegant when he's running and, and you know a lot of people would sort of bite their tongue as if i might uh, take out their teeth and they say well you, you look a little bit rough dave i'd say well that that kind of diffuses or dilutes really your comment but i accepted it Take yeah, us to the race. Take us to the race, guys. Let's go. 1989, you're in Hawaii, the Ironman Triathlon. Going into it for each of you, what were your feelings about each other? Did you expect that you would be the two 
who would be going to the wire on this, Dave? Yeah, I mean, I'll back up just a little bit. I'll be really quick on this one. Uh, you know, we, we had a riot, we had a rivalries at the other races going on. And uh, my, one of my closest friends, Mike uh, Norton, who got me into the race in 80, he, when I, we started, Mark and I started talking a lot about 89. He said, well, what was so great about that race? Why don't you talk about some of the other ones uh, that you won? <laughs> and I said, well, okay, we'll see if we can uh, direct the conversation to those earlier races. So, the momentum built up to 89 was really the prelude was in all the other Ironman races throughout the year. And they, there wasn't a template that either one of us followed, but I was able to win those earlier races. So by the time 89 came around, you really have to back up to 88. I was ready, ready to race. Mark was ready to race. I had an ongoing knee issue and I pulled out the night before the race. Mark can cover his uh, episode in that 88 race. So there, there was a lot of momentum even in 88. And now it was 89. And we were both hungry, I think, to go head to head. We felt as though it could be a climatic race and it, and it might go down to the wire. And we, we both had our individual strategy. Obviously, we weren't sharing that with each other. But I, I felt going into 89, uh, Mark was ready to, to really conquer this race but I was the guy he had to beat. Yeah, Dave was the gatekeeper. I, you know, 1989 was my seventh attempt at racing the Ironman in Hawaii. The first six years that I raced there, I did not win. Going into 1989, Dave Scott had won six Ironman titles, and there was only one Ironman that he competed in that he did not come out the champion. And so clearly he's six and one, I'm 0 for six. You know, I I don't know if I put myself in the category of, hey, I'm I'm going to be the guy that is going to give him a hard time, but I was certainly hoping to. But, it, you know, it was just, you can't argue with success. I mean, I don't care what your running style looks like, Dave. You know, you were kicking ass. And so it's like, okay, he knows how to race this thing. I've I've been in the lead many times early in it, but I always blow up and or I race it conservatively and I'm never in the mix. So I, I hadn't come up with that magic formula where, you, you know, I'm really giving everything I have, but it's still on the same side of, of uh, being able to sustain a pace all the way through. Cause eight hours, there's plenty of room for stuff to go wrong. And Dave knew that, you know, there were so many of the earlier years where he was just patiently waiting, watching me do a flyer off the front and, you know, like, uh, I don't know what, how you'd call him, but he could sniff when you were starting to, when I was starting to fall apart and then he'd turn up the afterburners and boom, you know, he'd win. I wouldn't, I'd end up in the hospital. I'd end up second, third, fifth, whatever. So, but anyway, we, we did have, a personally between the two of us, a, a pretty big rivalry, you know, in the sense that it seemed like I was able to win everywhere else except Kona. Dave had proven that he could win everywhere. He could win in Kona no matter what. If he showed up at that start line, he was the favorite. And so it was, in my mind, there really was only one other person in the race that year. And his name was Dave Scott. Dang. Did you feel that way, Dave? Did you feel the same way towards Mark? Um, yeah, I kind of tempered my comments on this and said, you know, the race isn't just a two-man race. But... I felt the momentum of that race. 
uh, I did sense that I always had a, a psychological seed that was above Mark going into Kona. And, and Mark had an unprecedented career, and he did have the ability, as he said, to win anything and everything. But when he stepped onto the big island, and, and this was seemingly my turf, I, I felt as though the the race was going to unfold by, by the psychological dent that I would put in Mark, not really knowing where that might be, whether it was closing the gap or maintaining the gap or surging. Uh, you, you sort of have, um, as Mark said, a lot of time to play with within eight, eight hours. But it's also a sense that I had that Mark is reacting to my moves. And psychologically, I, I felt that was an asset uh, for me, and I and I still did going into the '89 race, and as the '89 race unfolded, I, I felt that. But obviously, we were we were glued together, as you alluded to. So it kind of came down uh, a little bit later on in the race when I had to apply my tactic. You know, one thing that that always happened to me when I went to Kona was that, you know, you you try to emulate the the people that show show they know how how the hell to do it right and you know dave was that guy and and when you could see when he when he got onto the big island it's like he he looked like this superhero you know in my, in my brain he looked like he was about eight feet tall and and made a steal and and you know kryptonite didn't affect him he he was invincible and so and dave you know correct me if i'm wrong but he really likes to control the race you know control the pace control the race make everybody race on his terms. And so I thought that's how you got to race it. You know, you got to be this friggin' superhero type dude. And so I'd get off the plane in Kona feeling like, uh, feeling like I was getting deflated and trying to pump myself up and it just wasn't working. And, and so, you know, before I got on the plane in 89, I said, I have to do this differently. And, and I thought about how I raced in other places. And I realized that, you know, I do have my five different strategies of how I might win, but at the same time, if if the event unfolded completely differently than any of my strategies, I was completely willing to just respond to the day as it unfolded rather than try to control it and, and, and mold it. And so that became kind of my mantra for, for 89 was to, first of all, just stick with Dave and learn from him. I mean, the dude's the best there is. So why should I try and reinvent the wheel, learn how to do it from his pacing. And, but then more importantly, to just have it be okay to not have to be this big, huge pumped up dude, because I, I raced very differently, maybe with a very different mindset, even though both of us, I think were pretty steely in our resolve to just give everything we had on the days that counted most like 89 in Kona. <laughs> Uh, Gary, I'll, I'll, I'll put in that going into that race, uh, just because we had missed 88 and, and now it was 89 and, and, uh, and really due to Mark's sort of unprecedented year. And he had a great year and in 89, we actually battled in the gold coast. And, and, uh, I feel to this day, Mark had a historic run in that race. It was 30 K, uh, 18.6 miles. And he caught me on the run and this was April 89. I just said, you know, he, he, this is a long race, six hours. He's getting ready, and and I better be ready. So coming into '89, I, I felt the record that I had at the time was soft, and I had set that record in '86, uh, and won in '86, and again in '87, and I and I felt potentially that the time could really come down dramatically, 
and I had stated this in a, in a press conference. I, I didn't state it arrogantly. I, the resolve that I had was, well, I think I'm capable of doing this. If Mark is there to push me, I could possibly go faster. But I always wanted the, you know, the lead and, and again, sort of mandate the pace and mandate the race. And I wasn't going to hold back. This was world championships. So I think I proclaimed, and I never did add up the sum of the three events, but someone said, oh, Dave, that adds up to about 808. This was post-event. And I said, well, I thought I was capable of doing it, and I wish I did because I would have beat Mark on that day, but I only had an 810 in me. So I knew that Mark would be ready. I didn't think that he would have an issue, whatever that may be, whether it was physical or mental or, or whatever, that he was going to put together a good race and, uh, and I had better be prepared. I just had this plan to stay on Dave's feet and, you know, not, not try to break him psychologically or pull away. You know, I, in earlier races, I kind of had that feeling like I've got to get a lead early enough and then just hang on and hold it. And that, that wasn't working. So, you know, the gun went off and I found Dave just before the start and kind of shook his hand and said, Hey, have a great day. And I don't, I don't know if he remembers that or if it unnerved him or if it didn't, he didn't even think about it, but you know, Right away, I was on his feet, and of course, every three or four minutes, I just kind of tap his foot to let him know I was back there. Which I don't think you like that. But no, 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 I, I didn't, and and I and I don't really remember you being such a gentleman at the start. But uh, <laughs> I was keenly aware that you were right near me. I mean, I, I I felt that way with a lot of the other athletes. I was kind of like the honeybee, and and I was surrounded, but I knew the closest guy was, was you, Mark, and so I, I didn't really need to pat you on the head or on your shoulder and say, Hey, have a great day. Uh, you know, I was anxious like you were for the gun to, to go off, but and at the same time, uh, the, the tactic that I had on the swim and I always wanted to be able to do this was to be out with the front runners on the swim and, and the top swimmers ha had a different gear at the outset in the first 400 meters, they would go flat out. They would break away from me. And I always seemed to be the leader of the second pack. And over the years, people always asked, they, they said, T, I've followed your races, Dave and Ironman, and Mark was always on your feet. And I said, yeah, that really irritated, boy, irritated me. I wish I, I wish I could shake him, but simultaneously, I wish I could get him to the, to the front guys. So, you know, I had some, uh, just resolve that I just need to keep pushing the pace. And, and I have a tendency, I think, to, to go in these sort of waves of, I'm going to go a little faster. I'm going to uh, ratchet it up or bring it back. And, and I'm not steady pace like I would you know, advise people to do. I, I would play this game based physically and mentally on how I felt. And, and the mental part of trying to get away early on the swim was really trying to, 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 to ditch Mark. And that was my part of my tactic, or at least to make him very uncomfortable on the swim, uh, even though it was a relatively short segment, 50 minutes out of an eight hour day, there still is a huge fatigue factor on the swim. And if, if somebody gets out of the water 30 seconds or 40 seconds ahead and they're on their bike and you can't see them, it's a completely different game than if you're right there. But fortunately for me, you know, I, I was able to come out right on Dave's feet and we, we exited the, the transition area on our bikes. And 1989 was the first year that either of us uh, had done a little transition trick where you have your 
your cycling shoes already clipped into your pedals. And so you, you get on your bike and you kind of get up to speed just a little bit. And then you stop pedaling and you reach down and you put one foot in and then you put the other foot in. And it sounds like a, such a simple task, right? Well, neither Dave nor I were really, uh, we hadn't, neither of us had practiced this enough. And so literally 50 meters into the bike ride, when both of us are reaching down to put our shoe, our feet into our shoes, we slammed into each other and we both almost crashed. And I'm thinking, okay, the two, the two guys that everybody's talked about almost crashed out of the race because we can't get our feet in our shoes. That wouldn't have looked good in the history books, but fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, you know, we kept it going and then we had a beautiful, we had a beautiful 112 miles together, Dave. Yeah. Well, I remember that moment coming out of the transition area. There's, there's a lot of people that are kind of in this little trough, you know, just screaming. And and I remember that moment where we actually fortunately hit hard enough that we righted ourselves. And I was, I had like three fingers or three thumbs. I, I couldn't get those shoes on. I said, well, I better do this because the fast guys are doing this in the shorter races. So I've got to make sure that I have my shoes on there. And I noticed marks were on there and I said, okay, I'm ready to go. But I, I wasn't confident. There was a lack of confidence. It was getting my feet into my shoes. And, and as you said, it sounds pretty darn simplistic, but when they're wet from the ocean, you're trying to slide them in and also navigate yourself out of that chicane, getting up the towards Plani Hill. And then we happen to be side by side. <laughs> Boom. Uh, kind of ironic. It's just right. interesting. It's just interesting that, um, again, for me, like my vision, it just sort of shrunk to one person and it was just to stay with Dave. I, you know, I knew obviously we were, we were getting some reports, uh, spotty, but still some reports of where the other guys were and who was, who was up in the lead. We weren't actually in the lead at that point. Um, but I don't think either of us were concerned about that just because our marathons were pretty strong and the gap wasn't huge. So I just, stayed right behind Dave. Like I said, you know, my, my mantra that day was this guy knows how to do it. He knows how to pace it. And, uh, even though I want to, I would certainly like to come out on top. I can't do that if I do it the way I've done it before. And he, you know, he, that pace on the bike, uh, was very erratic. It was not steady, you know, and Dave would surge and then he'd kind of back off and he'd surge and he'd back off. And, uh, and I'll have to admit, there were a few times when you were surging where probably if you'd held it another minute or two, I I was I would have fallen off. But I wasn't going to tell you that on the day. <laughs> well, it's only taking you thirty odd years, but I, I kind of sensed that, and, and I and I did <laughs> I did try that, but I. Uh, ironically, the, there was a guy in, ahead of us. There were several, and I think we passed them early on. But Wolfgang Dietrich. Uh, great German athlete, tremendous swimmer, was ahead of us. And so I tried to, to diffuse my attention that you were right behind me, and I wanted, I wanted the lead. Wolfgang had the lead, and he maintained the lead. It went from uh, two minutes to a minute 30 up to three minutes at, at one point. But at the same time, I was cognizant that Wolfgang was not the runner that Mark Allen was. And I knew that okay, even if he had a small margin, we were going to catch him. I was certainly going to catch him early early on. 
And the other part that was so alarming to me, and I didn't really recognize this for almost a decade after our event, that we were followed by that posse that I was pulling on the swim. It wasn't just you, Mark. There was a whole slew of guys that never came around. And so I never saw the other guys that seemingly had the same bike split based on the pace that I was holding. And unbeknownst to me, you know, I never, I never saw them at all. They, they were at the start line and that was it. So it was a, a very unusual race and that it became a two man race. And I knew that you were behind me. There were multiple times that I did kind of surge and I, my style is to try to accelerate over the tops of the crest and, and Hawaii is not flat. It has about 4,000 feet of climbing. So people think it's a flat course and it's not, it plays to my, I'll say to my style riding that there's not any steep hills. And I thought, well, I can get away cresting the hill and really carrying that speed. So there were moments on the bike that I wanted to get rid of you. Well, and I probably never told you this, but though cresting hills, accelerating over the top of hills, little rollers like that, that's ab my absolute weakest aspect of cycling. Like if it's on the flat, I can hold a pretty, I can get a good pace going. My best is if it's long climbs like in Nice, you know, where you're just grinding away up these, up these climbs. Um, that was probably my, my ultimate strength, but accelerating over the top of little crests like that was I always got dropped so thank thank <laughs> god I didn't get dropped that day <laughs> well I, I I seemingly sensed that from I think from our races that if you did have a weak link that was one of them on the bike and, and I thought if I if I not only hold a steady hard pace on the climbs uh, and then crest it and really get back up to speed or a little bit faster than speed that this would start putting some wear and tear in your legs. And I, and I know I did it just because, you know, I always felt that uh, my asset was my, was my strength. And yeah, this was, it's kind of a strength cycling course. It doesn't have those real steep pitches. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do this multiple times. And I think I was ingrained to do it, sensing mentally you were going to hurt a little bit more uh, after repeated bouts of, of that tactic. You know, I was, I was so focused on matching your pace that one of the, one of the pieces of the race that I didn't get right that day was, uh, my race nutrition, like about mile, I think it was around mile 80. Um, I realized that I was starting to get sick to my stomach and I was feeling nauseous and I had, I, I, I realized that I'd actually tried to shove too many calories in there, you know, and, and too much fluid and liquid, which is such an easy thing to do in Kona, as you know. Uh, and all of a sudden, everything was just backed up, and I looked like I was pregnant. My stomach was sticking out. And uh, shortly after that, I actually threw up. And I'm thinking, okay, this is great. I've just thrown up all my nutrition, uh, and we've got a marathon coming up. And so I really had to. I really had to settle myself down because, you know, at that point I was going to, I was already starting to get a little feeling like I was running on fumes because stuff wasn't absorbing. And then I throw up and then there's nothing in there to absorb. But fortunately somehow it just kind of, kind of reset. And, you know, I, I couldn't go, Dave, can you slow down? I'm not feeling so good in my stomach right now. No, you know, 
we don't have those kind of conversations, right? I mean, in fact, I think to that point of the race, I don't think we'd said one word to each other, but then what are we going to say, right? Well, I never, I never saw you. You know, the remarkable part <laughs> about that, Mark, is that, you know, working with athletes, most people that had GI distress never come back. And they've got too much fluid going in their stomach because they consume too much and it just shuts them down for the run. So that was a good re <laughs> reset for you. Seemingly cleaned out your system and you're, you know, you're ready to go. And um, when we came in on the, you know, that last moment on the bike where I said, okay, I'm going to have a margin, which you alluded to on the swim, you get 30 seconds down the road. And even if you can see someone's back when they're running, just to close that gap takes a lot of mental energy. You know, are they feeling that, that strong, you know, they're holding the same pace, you know, I made up five seconds, but there's still this gap. And so I, I tried and I, my recollection is that you were feeling ill, which I did not know, obviously. And then around somewhere around 90 miles with 20 plus miles to go, I, I did put in a really hard, hard surge. And I said, I, I'm going to go a little longer period. So you obviously rallied after not uh, feeling great and maintained that same legal pace or distance behind me. That didn't work. And, and, and I, I didn't panic at all. I just said, okay, well, we're going to come down to the marathon and I've had the fastest run. I'm going to have to really, you know, put it in a, in a top gear on this run. Cause I think Mark was, Mark was ready to run as well. So there was that one final surge. You felt ill, but you were still able to maintain the pace. And, you know, I think for the viewers, the, um, the thing that they may not recognize is that we weren't talking because you have a legal distance between the athletes on the bike. You can't sit in a Peloton like you see in bike races or Tour de France. So there's a, there's a, a legal gap behind us. I did. I, I was hoping at some point that you would come up and take the lead. Just come up next to me so I can read your body language. Let me see what your feet are doing. And, and I do this, you know, to this day, I'm always analyzing people's movement on the bike, their breathing pattern, their face contortion if I'm right next to them. And I never got to see that with you, Mark. That probably would have helped me just, you know, not, <laughs> you're pretty stone faced. You don't really show a lot. I mean, like a boxer can get punched in the nose and they just smile. Uh, <laughs> you don't show a lot of expression, but I, I felt as though that would be a plus for me if I could read your physiology and your body mechanics. Well, that was my plan, you know, and that, there were points where Dave would look back to see what I was doing, how I was feeling. And every time he looked back, I'd kind of tuck my head down so he couldn't even see my face. I mean, I just didn't want to give any clue uh, how I was feeling. If I was feeling great, I didn't want him to know that. If I was feeling lousy, I certainly didn't want him to know that either. And so it, it did become clear toward those last miles of the bike that this, this was going to be a foot race, which neither of us had had, we we neither of us had started the run side by side. You know, we, it was either me in the lead or Dave in the lead. Uh, we had never set out of transition from bike to run. 
Uh, well, we did we did in '87, Mark, didn't we? We came in together in '87, and did then, we? yeah, yeah. No, you, oh, you, dang, you, I forgot yeah, that detail. Yeah, you need you need some more krill for your brain. I guess uh, so. <laughs> that would that would help. Uh, yeah, we were together in '87. We came out together, and I, I felt just wickedly bad. And about three miles, you took off. So in that race, we, we were together but very for a very short time. And you had this gap all the way to mile 21. So just to recall history, because that that uh, I don't know if that was uh, recorded at the time. But um, anyway, we're now in 89. And we well, were- hell, I guess that marathon in 87 was a better experience <laughs> for you than it was for me, because I just don't remember that detail. <laughs> well, I do remember I, I do remember the that. yeah I do remember the part where I was in the lead for a long period, but then I especially remember the point where I was walking and you ran by me looking like uh, okay, you blew it again, buddy. You know yeah, no, that's why I wanted to cover the greatest race of all time, eighty seven, not not eighty nine. Who cares about eighty nine? Anyway, yeah. we've spent quite a bit of time now in eighty nine, so we better finish the story. So we we did come out together side by side. I. I was similar to my first transition. I was fumbling with my shirt trying to get that on. And, and back in those days, we would pretty much change our garb, you know, our cycling shorts and we put on run shorts at the top. And now it's just all one piece. So we uh, we, we did both come out together. And uh, the outset of the run course in, in 89 and those early years went up about a 14% grade uh, from this hotel. And that was in the first 150 meters. And I remember going up that hill thinking, I've got to go at a pretty stiff pace right from the get-go in these first few steps to tell Mark I'm ready to run. And, and that hill stings you pretty badly, or it did me. But I don't really remember. I remember we got up there and I said, just get in a rhythm. Here we go. And, and he's still together. A lot to unfold. Yeah, I mean, right by mile three, we were running under six-minute pace through town there's a back then that was a, basically a 10k through the town of Kona before you actually headed out onto the Queen K highway in the lava fields and the meat of the course where everything is sparse there's there's not a lot of people uh cheering out there in town it's crazy with crowds and so there was just this huge energy and it felt like we were being propelled by just this deafening sound from the people who were cheering along the side of the road. And I think I knew we were going fast. I, I didn't know how fast we were going. And if you had told me during the race that we were running, whatever it was, 545 miles or something, I probably would have collapsed because that was just insanity to be running that fast that early in the marathon, doing a pace that I don't think anybody had, had done before. And, uh, but, you know, sometimes that's what happens when, you know, two people are really having a day that's the top of their game at the same time. And they are, you know, you propel each other past the numbers, past what any anything that anybody else could have possibly imagined is is possible. And that was what was taking place in those first miles. And I just I was just trying to hang on. You know, I, I thought, OK. I know. Uh, I, I would have had you just just calmly drop off if you'd taken that <laughs> choice, but you did hang on. And just for the record, because you've kind of fouled up a couple of the stats, 
Pat, my close friend, keeps keeps the stats. And, and of course, he's not telling me what pace we're running. But after the race, and I'm sure he said, oh, he should have run faster. We were going 548 pace for about the first eight miles. And so Pat had that down. And it, during those first couple of miles, Wolfgang was ahead of us. And I remember when we went by him and there was a huge crowd I felt as though he would, and not disparaging him by any means, I just felt he was almost walking. We went by him so quickly that the two-man race that was built up over a couple years, this was it. There was no one else who was going to catch us, and it wasn't overconfidence. I just said, you know, this battle is between two men. It was not easy, you know, I... There was one point halfway through town where uh, Dave's wife at the time jumped out of the crowd with their newborn son and she's running in front of us holding up the, the baby and she's going, go Dave, go Dave, go Dave. And so first of all, I'm looking at her in absolute amazement because she's kind of running like sideways at a sub six minute pace holding a baby. And I'm thinking, how the heck is she doing that? And then I realized that, you know, Dave just seeing, seeing his newborn son, it was just giving him this strength. And, and that's the only time I said anything to him that whole race, I turned to him and I said, hey, Dave, that's not fair. Yeah, that was, that was pretty witty too, Mark. And I, and I recall that very, very well. And I, when we get to the point where uh, your uh, future bride was on the in the race and then all of a sudden jumps out and she's got the most screeching scream ever i i wanted to say that's not fair and that came well late into the race at a critical moment but when yeah my ex jumped out with ryan that was part of the choreography because i didn't want to have him you know scald to death out in the cone of sun and i said could you come out in front of the condo so i was anticipating it we were in this close race we'd gone about uh, about four miles that's right exactly i know where it is and she was there, and, and Anna was a sprinter, and I think she was going flat out, but I was worried about my son, his head getting bobbled back and forth. But, boy, I think <laughs> the next couple hundred meters after that, I was probably about five-minute pace because it was, uh, it, it was a, a good kick in my pants and a real plus for me. So I wish she could have gone the whole way with me. Uh, I would have forgot about my uh, cohort right next to me. Yeah, well, you know, it, it, <laughs> cheating and it was, I guess, technically it was legal, right? You know? Yeah, it was legal. It, it Hold, was holding legal. up the baby, that's, that's pretty yeah. legal. Yeah. We didn't really start running, I think, uh, you know, where your mind is really focused on the marathon. I've been um, doing that race so many times and Mark after that race, and when you get on a lead drive, you are surrounded by people and there's a lot of distractions. And so, your mind can't look out at the at the landscape and you recognize the burning sun. But once you're out on the Queen K and in 89, that's about nine miles. Uh, that's when I kind of felt like, okay, you know, we're really racing now and, and it's time to singularly focus on what I can do. Those first miles that were, were extremely fast, I didn't feel as though – and to this date, I wouldn't have done it differently if I could run the race differently. I would have said, let's run that five five thirty eight pace, not five forty eight. I would have gone out as hard, and it was really just to um, physically and psychologically say that this is still my race. 
and I'm not overrunning a pace that I felt was manageable. I didn't, I never felt at any moment in that race until the, the, the breakaway that I was out of control. It was always in control and there was going to be a moment that I was going to break you. Mm. Yeah. I, you know, in those, those early miles, I felt like it was completely out of control. Like I said, like, how can, how could this be a sane strategy to be running this fast, this early? Uh, because usually that ends up burning too many matches and you can't put the calories back in and, and then you end up really slowing down somewhere after the half marathon point. But somehow it worked, you know, because we did get out on the, on the Queen K and I could feel myself really settle in also to the marathon because it's, like I said, it's stark. There's no distraction. There's an aid station every mile. But other than that, it's, it's you and yourself and the, the just, you know, that day it was just the sound of our two feet hitting the ground. You know, there was nothing else. And uh, the interesting thing is that, um, and, you know, Dave knows this because he was there, but the Queen K Highway, it's, it's a big wide road. And we kept bumping into each other because neither of us wanted to give an inch. And, you know, we were like, just kind of glued as closely as we could be. And every now and then we'd kind of, you know, something would happen and we'd bump into each other. And I was just, part of me was kind of chuckling, like we're not giving each other any space here, but this is how we're, this is how we're doing the race. Cause we were uh, in some way just like super connected. And it was, for me, it was very intense uh, to say the least because at that point in my career, I'd been racing seven years and I had a pretty good reputation as a strong runner, but I could just feel that there was no surge or trick or acceleration or anything that I could do that was going to break Dave mentally. And that I was, if I was going to be able to pull this off, I was just going to have to completely outrace him. And that was probably the most intimidating realization to have uh so i don't you know i don't know if you felt strong all throughout that entire marathon but that certainly felt like you were pretty darn strong well i i wasn't glowing like a honeybee the whole time i um <laughs> there there was a, a time and i actually you remember this i know i have brought this up before and it was a very good and legitimate tactic but Early on, uh, Mark, as you know, the, you come to the Cub Scouts that are at the aid station, they're spread out, and they're just completely paranoid that they're going to miss the pass, and we're clipping along pretty well. So you're really dependent upon the aid. And you had come on the inside of me, so I thought, well, that's fine. I'll just sort of drop back and get my aid. Mark will get his, and then I'll surge up. But it, it dawned on me when we were out on the Queen K, and, and you are in this – you know, uh, unforbidden landscape where it just seems relentless and repetitive. And it's, it's pretty easy to just all of a sudden say, Oh boy, you know, I, I, I'm going to lose my game. I did think at the turn point when we had 10 miles to go, we're now 16 miles into it. And we were, we were, had slowed down in those sort of middle uh, eight, seven miles. And at that point, I, I, I said to myself, I'm going to be on the inside. I'll get the aid. Mark will have to kind of drop back and surge up. I didn't feel as though it, it you know, played uh, uh, 
it didn't put an anvil on my shoulder, but I was cognizant of just being, having the first position to say, I want that first aid pass. Mark's going to drop back a few meters and then here we go. And I remember you coming around again. I said, oh, gee, that was, you know, that, that wasn't very polite. Uh, you should let me, <laughs> let me have that insight track, but it was, you know, it was a beautiful tactic. And, and so, uh, you know, I think these little surges to sort of catch back up and per your comment, where we sort of bumped each other was now I'm back up on your shoulder. And, and it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't malicious by any means, but I think, you know, I was telling myself and you we're, we're still together and this is still my race. And so we did sort of, you know, <laughs> we bumped at the outset of the bike. That was our first one, but there were several times in the run where, you know, we did kind of hit each other, our elbows sort of, uh, dinged each other, and I said, "Well, it's, there's no sense in running right on top of Mark." I'm sure you felt the same. Yeah, triathlon is not supposed to be a body contact sport. Mark, but <laughs> <laughs> can you talk about where it finally separated? I mean, we're we're closing in on the finish line here. What happened? Well, it became clear that um, the the course. Uh, on the meat of the marathon wasn't going to separate us. There are rolling, it's a rolling terrain course with very little flat, but none of it was steep enough to separate us, you know, in a, a climb or a, a, a very steep uphill or a steep downhill has enough impact on your strength or your weakness that if, if you have, I was feeling like I was stronger on the upgrades, but I was, it was clear that Dave was much faster than me on the downgrades. And as we got closer to town, it just became clear that there was one big uphill and one big downhill left on the course. And that was, that was with about a mile and a half to go in the, in the marathon. And so until then it was just going to be, uh, matching pace, staying calm, doing all the the stuff to hopefully be in a good position going into that hill. And that hill, uh, the upgrade obviously was first, and, and then you make a right turn on Polani Road, which takes you down this steep hill on the other side. And then it's just a march to the finish line. So basically, I knew that whoever got to the bottom of that hill first was going to be the champion. I knew that if Dave and I were together at the top of that uphill, that he was going to be the champion because he was so much faster on the downgrades and he would pull away on the, on that downhill. And so I thought, all right, when we get to that uphill, I've got to go. But the interesting thing, and this goes back to the aid stations, um, Dave got, there was an aid station right at the bottom of that hill. And so conventional wisdom says, okay, you grab one last glass of nutrition, get a few more drops of something in the tank, which is running on fumes right at this point, you know, basically 24 and a half miles into the marathon, and then you take off. And so, you know, we were both doing the, the positioning to, to try to get to the front of that, you know, the first one through the aid station, because the who, one who's coming in behind is meeting volunteers who are a little bit disoriented because they've been trying to get everything to the first guy through. And so Dave actually got his way to the front and hit the aid station just in front of me. And so he reaches over and he grabs for a glass of whatever he was going to get. And I, so I had, I started to drop back to come in behind him to grab a glass of something. And I just felt like something just said, go. 
and it was like I was shot out of a cannon and I pulled my hand back, which, you know, is, you know, don't grab the Gatorade. That's like counter logical wisdom, right? Because I'm risking running out of gas in those last mile and a half. I pulled my hand back and I started sprinting as best as you can sprint at the end of an Ironman. And, it, but it was just enough in those few seconds where Dave reached over and looked back to put a gap on him. And that was, that was the moment where the race started to break apart. This is a long hill, uh, Gary, and it's, uh, it's very deceiving. It's about a mile grade, not quite. And uh, the pitch is, I'll say insignificant if you're fresh, but at that point, as Mark said, you know, there's a huge fatigue level for both of us. And, and, and I was, I was keenly aware that I, I wanted that aid just like Mark did uh, because I was on fumes and I was fatigued and I was next to Mark. And so I was very, very assertive trying to get that. I remember, I think because we were so close together, I didn't really get the aid, but I sort of fumbled with it. And at that moment, Mark made his move, and and I recognized this right away. My tactic was exactly what Mark said. I'm going to be first at the bottom of Pilate, and I'm going to run with this reckless abandon going down that hill as absolutely as fast as I could to break Mark by the time we got to the bottom. And if I was in the lead, I would win the race because I would carry it that same speed uh, for the remainder of a relatively flat section. When Mark made the move on the uphill and I was to his left and he started pulling away, you know, my immediate response was, I've got to go right now. You know, Mark has definitely surged. I'm going to answer this. We're going to still get to the top. I'll be together and I'm going to beat him going downhill. But Mark's pace was relentless. And, and I realized probably within about 20, 30, 20 to 30 meters that I had, I had to dig down at the level that I had anticipated going down that hill. That my race started right now because now Mark was mandating what was going on, and he was opening up a gap. And and I knew I had to get to the top of the hill with as much of a lead as I could because of you know Dave's potent ability to just accelerate on that downhill and. So I got to the top of the hill and I ran down the bottom, ran down the other side. I got to the bottom of Polani Road, made the left turn onto the flats, which then carries you along for a little bit more into the finish. And I, that was the only time I gave myself the luxury of, of looking back to just see. And I, I couldn't see Dave. And I just knew at that point that the race was done, that I would win, that I, that I wouldn't collapse. I wouldn't fall apart and I wouldn't be caught. And, you know, it was, Coming down that that last little stretch on Elite Drive was it was it was a one day race, but a journey of seven years and a and a and a performance that clearly was driven by the two of us having such an intense rivalry. And it, people have to understand, you know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Dave, but you know, our rivalry was it, it was one that was built out of respect for each other athletically and personally, you know, it wasn't like I wanted to beat Dave Scott because I thought he was a jerk and a, a poor representative of the sport. I thought he was a great representative of the sport and, you know, a good guy, even though I didn't call him up to go watch a movie or anything, you know, I mean, <laughs> we had a rivalry. And so, you know, we didn't give anything up for that, but 
it was a rivalry that was built out of respect for the ability, uh, you know, and, and this, the standards that he was setting. And, and it just was, for me, it was like this huge benchmark inspiration, like, okay, he's going to be better every year. So how can I get that much better plus a little bit more? And that's what, you know, eventually turned into this incredible race where we were separated by 58 seconds and where both of us completely shattered his previous world's record. And, uh, you know, the, the marathon times that we posted that day stood as the two fastest for 27 years. Long time. I knew when we got to the top and you didn't have this information, Mark, because you were in the lead. But by the time we got to Polani Hill, I knew that you had won this race. Mm. I didn't give up, but I said, boy, you're, you're floating on a magical carpet going down that hill. I, I certainly didn't match your speed going down the hill nor on the flats. As you know, you heard the roar of the crowd that, you know, was your, your allies said, Mark Allen's going to do this. I heard 36 seconds, 33 to 36 seconds on one hill on the end that determined the race. And I, mm. and I knew that that mar margin was insurmountable. And it was uh, it was going to be you know your victory because you were floating at the, at that point. So yeah, I think the the mutual respect not to rub each other's backs. I never had a vendetta against Mark. I never said you know he's a real jerk and I just you know he acts this way or speaks this way. I, I always felt through the years that you know we 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 might have some historic race. Uh, I felt we had many that different circumstances dictated the outcome we weren't side by side all the way till the end and i think the 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 journalists and the people that follow the race kind of built up this scenario that th this could be a duel to the end and so they got what they want they got what they wanted but i wish the order was switched around so uh <laughs> you know <laughs> it, it was um you know it was quite let me let, let me uh, just finishing this as I as I read about this and what the two of you have said, and I and I would urge uh, listeners who want to read a little more about this, there's a site 1989thestory.com, which has some some quotes. It's the two of you talking about the races you have here. Am, am I correct? It was 15 years before the two of you talked about the '89 race to one another. That's what I've read. Is that true? Um, I, I, re, I do recall we we did a, a sort of a public event uh, in my recollection it was with the LA Tri Club and I think that's right of 2003 or four uh, in Los Angeles and we sat on stage with one of the great historians in the sport Bob Babbitt uh, and and mutual friend for both Mark and myself and he brought up a lot of things in the race that Mark and I just never really talked about because Mark won that race in 89 and went on to win five more. And I came back to Conan two years that, you know, for a lot of odd reasons we go get into, we didn't race against each other. So our, our battles in Kona ended in 89 and we didn't talk about it until 2003 or four. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, Mark. Yeah, we didn't. And, um, you know, it was interesting that in that event that we were, was held in LA, that was the first time that I'd actually heard a lot of, Dave's side of the stories. And, and if you if you go to that website, 1989thestory.com, uh, we we did a series of 
blogs for the 30th anniversary of our race two year, uh, whatever, a year ago. And uh, it, even in that, I learned so many things that were going on in Dave's life personally that it's like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know you were struggling with this or that was going on. And I, I think it was similar. And uh, it's just interesting. You know, I always felt like I was kind of human and he was superhuman. But then when I realized that he had to overcome just a lot of personal things to get to that start line and to be ready to go. It just, you know, just added, uh, you know, another level of respect, like, wow, you know, that's, that's what a a great champion is made of is somebody who takes a dream or a vision and integrates all the things they have to deal with in their life and still shows up anyway, ready to go. Gentlemen, uh, we, we probably we passed the time we promised you that we would try and get this finished, but it, it's just magnificent to listen to the two of you talk uh, about why it is classified as the greatest race, the 1989 Hawaii Ironman Triathlon. I can't tell you what a treat it's been, uh, both Dave and Mark, to have, have you do this with us. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been most enjoyable. And it's, it's a great story and one of the great rivalries of all time in sports. Thank you for sharing it with us. I appreciate it. And that is going to do it. This concludes uh, another chapter of These Sports Rivals. You can find the show at Believe.com or wherever you listen to the podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show. To learn more about this show and other episodes, please log on to TheSportsRivals.com. You can join the conversation with questions and suggestions for future shows. You can follow us on Instagram at These Sports Rivals, on Twitter at TheSports.UnderlineRivals, and Facebook by searching for These Sports Rivals Podcast. Thank you all for joining us. Our great thanks, Dave Scott and Mark Allen in the greatest race ever run. And remember, it is the rivalries that make the games. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.